Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Before the start of this next episode, I want to stop to remember a hero, a guardian of justice and a pillar of strength, police officer Keith Palmer. Keith was murdered on March the 22nd, 2017, a day that forever changed the course of countless lives. Yet even in the midst of grief, we must remember that Keith's sacrifice serves as a powerful reminder of the selfless dedication and bravery exhibited by those who wear the uniform. Keith Palmer, a devoted husband, a loving father and a committed officer of the Metropolitan Police Service, epitomised the qualities we admire and cherish in our law enforcement community. He embodied honour courage and an unwavering commitment to protecting and serving his community. Each day he confronted the challenges of his profession with integrity and an unyielding sense of duty, striving to create a safer and more just society for all. On that fateful day in March, as Keith stood guard outside the Houses of Parliament, he faced an act of unspeakable violence, a census act that sought to instill fear in the face of this grave threat, Keith Palmer stood firm, placing himself between the danger and those he swore to protect. With no regard for his personal safety, he courageously confronted evil, embodying the very essence of a guardian. Keith's sacrifice is a stark reminder that heroes walk among us, 
silently shouldering the weight of our collective safety. They willingly step into the fray, knowing the inherent risks, but driven by an unshakable belief in the principles of justice and the well-being of their communities. Keith Palmer was one of those heroes. The embodiment of the ideals that define the police service and inspire respect and admiration. Keith Palmer possessed an innate ability to connect with people, to empathise and to understand their struggles, and to lend a compassionate hand when it was needed most. Keith's dedication extended beyond his role as a police officer. It flowed into the very core of his being. His unwavering commitment to his family, friends and colleagues was a testament to his character. A character built on love, loyalty and an unwavering sense of responsibility. Keith leaves behind a legacy of honour and valour. A legacy that will forever inspire and guide us. His memory will endure as a shining example of the selflessness and sacrifice inherent in the noble profession of law enforcement. Police Constable Keith Palmer, your memory will forever be etched in our hearts and your sacrifice will never be forgotten. We will continue to honour your legacy by upholding the principles you held dear and striving to build a world where justice and compassion prevail. Rest in peace, Keith Palmer, and know that your courage and sacrifice will forever serve as a beacon of hope for all. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And as I say every week, it's another episode and another fantastic guest. This week, joining me on the podcast is retired Chief Superintendent Raj Kohli. Raj has spent over three decades in British policing and joins me this morning to talk about his career, the highs, the lows and everything in between. But Raj, welcome to the podcast. And as I say, every time at the start of my episodes, we like to wind back that career clock. And my first question has got to be, why policing? There is a history of a, a couple of my uncles are in the Indian Army, so there's a real history of Sikhs joining the armed services. But I think the real one was uh, I think I was psychologically damaged as a child because um, back in the sort of the early 70s, um, Doctor Who's one of his first assistants was Roy Castle, who I, I believe was a police officer. So I'm sitting there watching Doctor Who on a black and white TV, sitting in a police officer's uniform that my mum had made, um, just incredibly drawn into everything that Roy Castle was doing. And um, so fast forward 22 years, and my mum says to me, how come you want to join the police? You've been to university, you've got a degree. And I said, well, I watched Dead Cars, I watched Doctor Who, I had my own police officer's uniform, I think it's your fault, mum. So I think there's like a mixture of things. But in my heart, mm -hmm. public service, it's, it's always been what gets me out of bed, always. And what was the, you know, the, the reaction from family is often one that can be mixed. You know, there's certainly examples of families being very positive about their loved ones joining policing. There are some examples where friends are a little bit cautious as to kind of what does that mean for our relationship. What was the response from friends and family when you disclosed them that you were pursuing this dream of going into the police? So family were worried initially. Um, they, they, you know, the, the 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 mood music about the Met Police, even back in the in the, in the early nineties, was about racism and facing discrimination. Um, I had what I would call an intervention. So my seven best friends, six of whom were from London, therefore could talk about the London experience. They um, they sat me round the table. I was effectively trapped in a dining room with seven of my best friends, and I was grilled for three hours. Why do you want to join the police? Um, and I think they just wanted me to know that uh, their experience of 
London policing wasn't great. And um, did I know that? Because I, I was in Glasgow at the time, as your listeners can probably tell from my Birmingham accent, I'm actually from Glasgow initially. So I'm in Glasgow at the time, not really, whilst I've, whilst I've visited London and got relatives there, and I was actually born in London, I don't really, didn't really understand London from a kind of a young person's perspective or relationship with the police. Um, so three hours of grilling me, and all seven accepted that, that that was my decision. And I'm still very, very, very close. So I didn't lose any friends, but I could have. Um, now I think it's fair to say my family are proud. Um, I think my, I'd fair to say my friends are proud as well. Tell us about that experience of going through the recruiting process. Was it something that you associated with um, a normal experience? Was it relatively easy for you? Were there some challenges? Were Did, did you experience anything that, that worried you about what your family had raised around the race issue at that time in, in the Mets history? So the actual selection process was relatively straightforward. Um, and um, it's, I mean, it's vastly different to what uh, recruits go through now, but the actual selection to become a police officer is relatively straightforward. The six months at training school was 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 great fun, but there were a couple of incidents which hugged on my, uh, you know, on, on the thoughts that maybe there is a problem with racism. Um the one that sticks to mind is a, is a joke that I – I say joke. It's not a joke. Third, third hand, which somebody actually reported. Uh, and the joke goes along the lines of what's 50 foot long and wraps itself around uh, the C word. And the answer to this joke is a turban. Now, you know, that's offensive on many, 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 many levels. Um what would happen in 2023 in the Met is if that joke was was cracked, the officer or member of staff would get sacked. Back then, mm. I think it was treated differently. I don't, I don't think they necessarily treated it lightly. I just don't think they treated it as strongly as they could have. So that was my first experience. Um, then I, you would hear phrases like. Um, um, oh, I, I stopped. Couple of, uh, uh, yeah, I, I arrested a big black guy today, and I'd and I and I'd, I'd ask the question, what's relevant about their ethnicity in that? Because the only thing that's relevant is, are they big? Because if they're big, they're a bit more difficult to handle. If they're a man, yeah. then usually men are more difficult to handle than women. So the, the gender and the size is important. Where where does the word black now introduced itself? And so there was elements of language being used which essentially describe black people. And by black people here, I mean African Caribbean. And there's a whole debate around the politics of ethnicity. But in this case, African Caribbean people who are black are much more aggressive, much more violent. Um, and then I'd see, you know, I would see things that weren't overtly racist, but you just knew that people of colour got a slightly different um, uh, level of service, one of which I did formally complain about um, and had a sleepless night. But my inspector the next day thanked me and said, you were right, the way the officer operated was wrong. He's apologised and they've now rectified the matter. I mean, if, if your viewers are wondering what, so if your listeners are wondering what that is, is there was a road rage incident and uh, a white woman had common assaulted a 
women of Pakistani heritage called her a Paki bitch. And I dealt with the Pakistani uh, family, and my white male colleague uh, uh, dealt with the suspect. And he, I was three months in, four months in, and he is like 28 years in. And so he comes in, he is by far the senior PC, and I'm thinking, right, well, we're going to nick the white woman. And um, mm. he says to me, right, names and addresses of exchange, it's a common assault, no, no need for police action. And I felt utterly mortified because for me there was clearly racial aggravation, racial motivation, and there was an assault. And I had a sleepless night, I reported the next day, and it was dealt with. But it was those things about levels of service for, for people of colour weren't always great. Uh, they weren't always great. And so um, that was my initial experience. But I, I kind of fought through it, even at times when I felt I was being overlooked or perhaps um, not listened to or, or understood. I kind of fought through it. Did you find working with colleagues going through the training college and then graduating um, initially out to Hillingdon Borough, people showing an interest in your faith and your background and what that meant and trying to explore it so they could understand sort of you as an individual uh, more in depth? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, whilst there were some levels of, of I would say, um, unconscious bias and discriminatory practices, uh, policing is a very, it's very much about a team. And my team did sort of corral themselves around me. So I, was, I felt very much like the team. I remember going to um, uh, Chelsea and standing um, when, when the shed was standing room only and coins were chucked at me. And I didn't I didn't bat an eyelid. And I made pound fifty. so why would I? But they were chucking coins at me. And my sergeant found out afterwards and he was furious with me. He said, you should have told me we'd have gone on nicked those BAST, et cetera, et cetera. He was furious. So there's real, real, but in terms of, you know, the interest in my faith, there was interest. I, you know, I did explain what my faith meant, what, 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 what my, you know, what wearing a turban meant. That, that was important. Um, my, you know, my initial years and all my years in policing being great, my initial years were far more supportive than are negative, but there were negative elements to it. Policing is an incredibly challenging vocation which requires a number of skills from individuals to be competent in the vocation uh, in terms of the interaction with the public, the ability to process law and legislation, elementise offences and deal with a variety of different scenarios over any sort of 8 to 12 hour shift. When, when you graduated, when did you realise in those sort of first six, 12 months that policing was going to offer a variety of different challenges? And do you think you were well prepared to deal with those challenges following your period of training at the college? Now, this is where uh, I will do my impersonation of a dinosaur and say that I think six months residential training is better than what we have now, because I just think it allows you to really grow and understand uh, yourself as a person grow and understand about teamwork it allows for, for those really difficult discussions to be had around culture um, and around how best to behave uh, so I feel when I left training school I did understand what was out there um, but of course knowing what's out there is different to being uh, to actually feeling you're able to apply for some of these roles because often some of these roles are by invitation only um, and, and, and that's what I've kind of, I wouldn't say fought against, but I've kind of sort of raised the profile of, well, there's underrepresentation in certain elements of policing because 
you're just not inviting underrepresented groups to even think about those careers. One of the one of the areas that you looked at in your first early initial years between 92 and 1995 was a six-month stint as part of a stop-and-search review team, I should say. And stop-and-search has been um, a sort of a, a controversial yeah. subject matter now for a number of years in terms of those that are subjected to it, the disproportionality between ethnic groups in, in parts of London within the Metropolitan Police. What was the importance of you taking part in that project and give you a good understanding as to kind of where things were done really well but areas of improvement that could be made? So I was very new to all of this. Uh, you know, I've got a degree in electronic engineering, but really I think I should have done social science or anthropology because that's where my real interest lies. I was really interested in mm. um, what, I, what was clear to me, not evidence-based, but anecdotally was the over-policing of certain communities. Uh, and it's from that point where I came up with my own theory or my own position that uh, policing is a wannabe middle-class organisation that over-polices the working class. And that when the working class are overrepresented by people of colour, we straight away over-police people of colour. That's a fact. Um, the people that have taken more money out of our pockets, me, you, our listeners, are, are white upper-class men in, in, in the square mile with insider share dealing and all sorts of shenanigans that are taking place that affect our interest rates, that affect our mortgage payments, that affect everything. Uh, so if someone steals my... my um, my Samsung Z4 Fold phone. Um, other phones are available, but not as good as this one. Then, yes, it's an inconvenience. <laughs> and, yes, it's going to cost me X amount of money to pay, pay it back. But the fact is, it's a minimal impact versus what's taking place in high finance with white-collar fraud. That is not to say that I'm saying, you know, we should only ever police the financial sector and ignore... Uh, that crime, but I think it needs to be put into balance. I think the other thing that needs to be put into balance is that um, knife crime has existed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Britain's most famous knife criminal was Jack the Ripper. He was a white working class man. He wasn't a black lad from an estate, which is what the, the common kind of, I think, description is. Um, in the 50s and 60s, mods and rockers were stabbing each other in Brighton Beach, football hooligans, 70s and 80s and 90s, were all knife-carrying, knuckle-dusting, duster-carrying uh, hooligans, uh, attacking each other purely because you happen to be supporting another team or like different form of music. One of, one of my favourite movies is the film Grease, set in the 50s. They're all carrying flick knives, but we celebrate it as an amazing movie because it's great music and, well, not very good acting, but that's not the point. Point being is knife crime, knife carrying, knife use has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And first, first stated case of 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 illegal knife carrying was a a soldier, I think, coming back from the Boer War. So what I put to perspective is, yes, um, knife carrying is a problem that needs to be addressed, and uh, maybe later on we'll talk about how we can address it. But we shouldn't pretend it's just suddenly happened, because what I think is happening is that certain news outlets look at immigration policy and look at diversity and inclusion, and then they relate it to uh, uh, knife carrying and violence. So, um, so yeah, stop and search. We do over-police certain communities. If we were to, um, if you and I were to go on patrol outside certain nightclubs in London, we would have a massive strike rate on picking up Class A drugs, usually 
white men and women. Uh, it's ironic that when in Camden, but 500 yards from an estate where people are complaining about drug dealing, are middle-class people smoking cannabis at their barbecue in their garden in Northwest 5, Northwest 4, wherever it might be. So there is an irony there. There is an irony there. Between 95 and 99, um, you were based at Hammersmith and Shepherd's Bush, and then you were a DS at Marlebone, and you were attached, importantly, uh, to the Lawrence Review team, working alongside some quite formidable names in policing history in Neil Basu and John Sutherland, along with many others. How important was it to be part of that review team into what was a rather defining moment in the Metropolitan Police's history, um, looking into the tragic circumstance around Stephen Lawrence's murder? I, I, I think it was important for me, for my professional and personal development. I think also it allowed the organisation to speak, to, to have three, me, John and Neil at this point in time had about six or seven years service. So we were still relatively new to cast a fresh, fresh pair of eyes. Um, but also, you know, what was coming out of some of the inquiry, um, I, I felt could be positioned in a slightly different way. So I didn't like the term institutional racism, which I know we'll, well, we might talk about later on. Um, I understood where it came from. I didn't necessarily support it as a concept. And so just to try and understand, put into perspective um, what it's really like, because especially in 2023, policing is judged by um, TikTok videos, shaky handheld mobile phone footage. Some of the mainstream media, I have to say, disappoint me with some of their, their headlines. Um, so to put it back then, put it into some operational context that, yes, we might be over-searching young black boys, because we were, but the operational context is that we are being called to those groups from the public and that if central government bothered to put its hand in its pocket and properly worked with young, disadvantaged, excluded people of whatever colour, then those sorts of behaviours would, would disappear. Not completely, but would reduce uh, significantly. So it's important to put the operational context because I will never throw my colleagues under the bus. Yes, there are some corrupt colleagues, but there are colleagues who work hard and make mistakes. I've made many a mistake in my career, many a mistake. Um, and it's good to see, I think, that policing has gone towards being a learning organisation more than a punitive organisation, although that might change again as, as the pressure builds to, we talk about the Met, to completely restructure it culturally. I think the pressure is going to change into one of being more punitive. Um, but I, it needed it needed me and Neil as, as men of colour to put the operational context around what it's really like to be a police officer. Was it at that point in your career that you could see the the change that you could infect in, in, in understanding where errors had been made and potentially start to climb through the leadership ranks within the department to have greater influence around policy and decision-making and, and to lead men and women in a way that you felt would have a positive impact on communities in London? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I do 
recognize that um, it feels a bit odd that I might come across as saying, well, my career has been held back because of my ethnicity. And then your listeners thinking, but Raj, you're chief superintendent. <laughs> Clearly, my career hasn't been held back. Um, but I definitely had more of a fight at certain points to be recognized because I'm a different thinker. I said to um, to my current chief constable, um, or was before I retired, I said, um, Scott, you know, you might think I'm a tofu eating, guardian reading uh, liberal. I hate tofu. But the point being is that I am the other two, but that doesn't mean I can't deliver operational policing. But I've always been a different thinker. I think that's always got in the way of me progressing almost as much as my ethnicity, almost as much, because I don't think policing really values difference. Um, but I have used each rank that I've gone up as a platform to share my views. By the way, my views are not necessarily perfect and the right answer, but they are my views and they are an alternate view, which I think needs to be heard. And so I've used each rank, especially from chief inspector onwards, especially from that rank, to move forward uh, to, to really share my views. I'm not sure I persuaded enough people to think differently, not to think like me, that's not right, but to think differently around policing. I don't think I did it. I don't, because I don't think there's enough free thinkers um, in policing. And I, that's that's a shame. Free thinkers often exit policing um, because they just don't feel they're being heard. What when you stepped into that first commissioned rank at inspector between 1999 and 2002, what were some of the biggest challenges at that, that those first early ranks of, of, of real seniority? Well, I would say that the biggest challenge, the biggest rank, is that of sergeant, because that's the first time you are given the responsibility of looking after other people, other human beings, and delivering a public service. Yeah. Uh, the inspecting rank, therefore, I found not as difficult as it might have been because I had a really good grounding as being a sergeant. I was a uniformed sergeant um, in sort of a central London area as a DS in a central London area as well, so had some quite challenges uh, around all that. What What... The challenge I found as being an inspector was, again, about getting my voice heard and and persuading my cohort of other inspectors about looking at things slightly differently. I know that, um, again, this would have been 1999. Um, I, I had a female sergeant who wanted to do flexible working, a single parent. I didn't see any issues with it whatsoever. We can manage it. I'm not saying that I'm some sort of, you know, uh, uh, bearer or, you know, leading the, the, the vision of flexible working. The amount of pushback I got from sergeants and other inspectors, how can you allow this to happen? And my position was, it's not difficult to make it happen. We, we pride ourselves on running and delivering critical incident policing, yet somehow we can't find ourselves able to just do be a bit creative around someone's shift pattern. That's where I found the difficulty, not operational policing, the the, the bit yeah. around credibility and that do people think I'm just too far out there with how I think? Um, and how do I stay within the team without becoming part of groupthink? 
And then your first exposure to supporting a very senior officer in uh, Assistant Commissioner Tariq Gaffour, who was in the Metropolitan Police at that time, I assume as a staff officer. What's that experience like? You get to have sort of a, a, a very close and intimate knowledge as to the pressures and the challenges of the senior executive team of an incredibly large organisation managing many different functions. What was that experience like? I would imagine you would have been under the pump. It was full on. It really was full on. Uh, it was a brilliant experience. So on, on a practical level, you started to build networks of people that I could contact or remain in contact with for the next 15 years of my service till they retired because, you know, you'd be calling other chief superintendents, other chief inspectors, other HR managers, finance managers on behalf of your AC. So you build those relationships. So when I left Tariq's uh, private office to do other things, if I was stuck with something, I'd already made these kind of professional friendships with much senior colleagues and I already had a credibility. With so in mm. terms of my credibility and them knowing who I was, I'd made those really great connections. But it really exposed me to the ego and politics of the, the highest levels of any organization. Um, there are egos and politics at the top levels of policing. Um, I, I'm hoping I'm not surprising any of the listeners by saying that, but there are because that's <laughs> the nature of the beast. It happens in the BBC, it happens in ITV, it happens in Parliament, it happens everywhere. And it's understandable why this is coming to play, because these are highly successful men and women who have got their own views and ideas about how we deliver a service. And ultimately, they want to deliver the best service for the people of London, as it was in the Met. Uh, but sometimes egos get in the way. It was, it, was a, it was a tricky place to see some of those politics unfold. Very tricky place. And then, obviously, you move back into operational policing as a DI, then a chief inspector at Brent with the geographic responsibility of the Kilburn area. Just for our listeners who are outside of London and outside the UK, just describe that sort of demographic, that area, and the challenges that come with the responsibility that you were given. So um, Brent is one of the most diverse areas in London. So on one hand, you've got kind of Wembley, so you know where the football is, and you've got some really not, not nice places to live there and some estates where perhaps it's a bit more challenging. As you go towards Kilburn, you're heading much more towards inner city London. Um, there you've got the big housing estates built from the 60s and 70s, real deprivation, uh, a real you know lack of engagement with young people, um, uh, a really difficult place to work because there was such mistrust of the police and mm. you know i you know i remember i made this decision that i'm not accepting that certain states won't talk to the police i'm just not accepting it so um on my own and officer safety instructors around the united kingdom will say this is wrong raj but i did it anyway on my own, I went into one of these more challenging estates and I sat down on a park bench in full uniform on my own. I told colleagues where I was going. I didn't just disappear. I wasn't, I wasn't a missing person that put a manhunt for. But I told my colleague where I was going to go. I said, I'm just going to go and sit down. I'm just going to absorb and observe what's happening. Because too often we, we get bust in, we police an area, then we get bust out again. We don't actually observe and absorb. And, of course... All the kids, they were 95% black. All the kids saw me and ran away. But I stayed there for 15 minutes, and they all started to come back slowly but surely, wanting to know 
why are the feds here? So I talked to them, and I talked to them. I talked to them for about an hour and a half, and they gave me the most incredible community intelligence, the most, most incredible community intelligence, including intel around how we policed them. And uh, so I did that two more times in two different estates. And each of those times, the name of an officer popped up. And they said to me, this officer turns up and he winds us up. Then when we get annoyed, he nicks us. And the third time I heard that officer's name, I rang him that evening and said, I'm removing you from your current role. I'm going to move you elsewhere on the borough. And he was not happy. And I'm surprised he didn't take an employment tribunal. I said, I'm saying for a number of reasons. First and foremost, your personal safety. Because I've heard enough people say they are so unhappy about you, I cannot guarantee your safety. So your personal safety, but also the safety of the community because you, your engagement with them is really upsetting them. And then they, you know, and when I did that, I didn't do it for show. I did it because it was the right thing to do. Then the communities knew that mm. they had me on their side. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with me as a police officer being on their side. I'm a public servant. They are the public. I feel there is nothing wrong with me being on their side when it comes to those sorts of concerns. Then they trusted me. And I gave all of them my um, business card and said, if you ever have a problem, you ring me. None of them ever rang me. But the point being is the gesture of giving me my contact, giving them my contact details meant a lot. A lot. And they told me some stories around stop and search, around being strip searched, around being taken miles away, strip searched, and then told, oh, you can walk back home now. Well, I straight away put in some policies and instructions around stop and search and strip search. And I remember um, there was a crimin to go in. So a criminal intelligence report went in by the TSG. So the TSG came in. So they're a central unit deployed to local boroughs. They came in and they put in a criminal intelligence report. There's a senior officer by the name of Three Star Raj who's telling the community that um, when they're stopped and searched, they don't have to give their names and that we cannot take their phones off them when they record the stop and search. And I said, yes, that's for me. And no, you can't do those things. Because what cops were doing was they were taking the phones off people recording stop and search and deleting those images. There might be nominal criminal damage there. But what grounds, what power, what authority are you doing to take someone else's phone off them? Now, this is the you know, mid-noughties, mid, mid, uh, uh, 2005, 2004, thereabouts. But I did upset some colleagues on TSG because they felt I was siding with the community because I was listening to the community. But the community were not lying to me. I did something about it. And that's where I really understood that take time out to observe and absorb what is really taking place and then do something about it. Did you find by delivering that approach in that area that you saw a reduction in sort of incidents of crime? What sort of the knock-on effects to that approach that you had in terms of, was there a more harmonious relationship between policing and the community? We're going back now 15 years. As I recollect, we had a much, much, much better relationship with the community. So more community intelligence came in. Stop and search still took place, but it was done much more respectfully. 
there was no uptick in 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 um, there was no uptick in crime. So you might think that if we are a bit different with our stop and search, that's always the argument, isn't it? If you stop and search less, then crime's going to go up. I'm not sure that the cause and effect of that is as as direct as people might think it is. But crime didn't go up, but certainly community confidence massively improved. And I remember when I left Brent, um, Dawn Butler. Um, who's still the MP there, but she did she, she stopped being an MP there for a few while. She was the MP back then as well. Um, mentioned my name in, in the House of Parliament for my work around youth engagement, primarily because uh, the community was saying to her, we've got a cop who listens to us and responds to what we're trying to do. And I, I don't think, I don't think that senior police officers realise they are champions of the public and we, we as senior police officers are utterly invisible. And that's so wrong. We, you know, yes, our PCs and PCSOs should be the face of the, of the public, but we are the senior public servants. We spend the public's money on their behalf, yet we sit behind desks and hide ourselves. And I can't do that. And I never, I've never done that. So talking between the period uh, between 2008 and 2012 now, superintendent at Camden, including four months as part of the Olympics and Paralympics delivery team. Now, between um, that period must have been incredibly busy. Again, another step up, rank of superintendent, answerable to a chief superintendent and beyond now, greater level of responsibility. What's it like being part of such an incredible event that is the Olympics and having an impact on an event where the world is watching how the security element is executed? What a response to a terrorist attack during the London Olympics might look like as around 100 Royal Marines and 50 elite police officers took to the Thames for a dramatic dress rehearsal. With a Lynx helicopter flying overhead and fast response boats speeding along the river, this demonstration of firepower offered a glimpse into the security operation behind the Games. Although it comes amid fears attackers could use the capital's waterways to launch their attacks, Scotland Yard emphasised that no one should be alarmed. It is still a blue games. So there'll be something in the region of 12, 12,500 uh, police officers deployed nationally. I have always said we would have uh, an element of niche military assets supporting us. That's just what that is. Come August, Typhoon Jets and HMS Ocean, along with over 13,000 military personnel, will be deployed to protect the Games in an operation which is costing hundreds of millions of pounds and Thursday's high-profile dummy run will seek to reassure visitors and deter any would-be attackers. It was the best operational policing experience a man or woman could ever have. Um, that is the Met at its finest. That, But that's also county colleagues, City of London, British Transport Police colleagues as well. You know, it's a shared, it's a shared triumph of of policing. One of the things that um, I really, I smiled at was that we had county colleagues who stopped and spoke and smiled at people much more than Met colleagues did. Now, you could argue, well, county colleagues have come from the county, so coming to London is a bit of a holiday for them, you know, albeit on, on duty. Um, but still, there was a different approach, and that approach definitely affected some of my colleagues in as much as. They stopped to be a little bit more friendly with the public. 
I'm not saying that Met police officers are unfriendly. I just think there is there's the, the, the we, we we can sometimes stop short of being as friendly as we could be. So county colleagues were definitely much friendly, and I think other colleagues learned from that. It was a brilliant. So I was I was in charge of uh, all the non-Olympic events that took place south of the river. So the Olympics drew ninety-five percent of uh, police resource, but of course there were summer fates. There were there were um, there were fairgrounds. There were. There were rugby and um, matches and cricket matches and all other things that still needed an element of policing, but we needed to manage, um, you know, appropriately. Bear in mind that we just didn't have enough people to go around, and that was really challenging. And I remember that uh, I sat at a security advisory group. So bang in the middle of the um, the Olympics, there was the uh, double header army versus navy rugby match at Twickenham. Every year's a sellout crowd. If my my maths works, if I, if I remember correctly, we supply some we supplied something like two hundred and fifty police officers to that event. Now, Twickenham say yes, we'll pay you for two hundred and fifty officers. My view was that just because you can pay doesn't mean you should have them. And actually, I'm not sure I can give you two hundred and fifty officers anyway because about ninety five percent of our resource is dealing with the Olympics. So I had a I had a look at the policing plan, and um, I said I can deliver this with fifty officers or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. Fifty officers put the onus on some elements of the management of the event back to the event organisers, um, and uh, I think a letter of complaint went in about me, saying that um, you know we're willing to pay for two hundred fifty officers, and Raj is saying no. He says we can have fifty officers. We ran the event with 50 officers. I attended the rugby um, as a member of the public. My son was a big rugby fan there back then, so we attended as a member of the public. But I went primarily to see whether my, whether my risky plan had worked. It worked perfectly. Now, as it happens, I think we negotiated or they settled that uh, providing 75 or 80, I think is the number now. My maths might be hazy. It's about 10 or 12 years ago. But I decimated the number of police officers because – I didn't think it was appropriate, but just because someone can pay for something that that they should necessarily have it. And of course, as public order policing has matured, the more we are engaged with certain events, the greater our responsibility becomes. And if that event goes wrong, the greater um, uh, uh, pushback that it's your fault takes place. So we you know there's that balance between making sure that public feel safe and secure versus the responsibility of a profit-making organisation to hold an event. Did you see during that period a, a change in policing's capabilities? Uh, because it was obviously during the tenure of Theresa May as the Home Secretary. Uh, obviously, there was a significant reduction in police funding during quite a substantive period, which had an impact in frontline policing to some extent and is blamed today for the position that policing finds itself in. Did, is that a... Um, do you concur with that sentiment or do you have a different view on it? No, I, I entirely concur with that sentiment. But I don't, you know, I think it's more nuanced than just um, resourcing policing. You've got to resource um, uh, youth workers, social workers, mental health provision. You've got to resource all these things properly. But I do remember, we have from the one, two, three model. So every ward in London, uh, back in the halcyon days of pre-Theresa May, uh, had 
And so the 623 wards, each ward had one sergeant, two PCs, and three PCSOs. And the reassurance that that group had for the ward was, you can't, you can't, you, you can't put a number on it. I know for a fact when my, my, I'd come home from work late of an evening, I'll see a PC or a PCSO on patrol on my street. And I felt reassured. And that's me as a cop who doesn't need reassurance. I felt reassured. Now you see nobody. Beginnings of the the uh, degradation of neighbourhood numbers took place then. And I, myself and George Southern, I remember we sat in our office after we'd been told these numbers are going to come down. Looked at us and we both said, this is a disaster waiting to happen. And uh, it is an unmitigated disaster because it's not just... Right, so people talk about police officer numbers and the government will talk about 20,000 uplift in police officer numbers. That is nowhere near the numbers that were taken away post Theresa May straight away. But police officer numbers is not the same as police numbers. So you could lose many, many, many PCSOs who perform an amazing job, eyes and ears, with community intelligence and understanding of the communities that they look after, who's many, many, many PCSOs, but still make the argument that you've increased police officer numbers. You might have increased police officer numbers, but your overall numbers in looking after the public's gone down. Um, I think it's a tragedy what we did to community policing. Community policing, uh, the right people, reassuring the public, Yes, they might have a cup of tea with Mrs. Miggins, but trust me, Mrs. Miggins knows exactly what's happening on her street and will tell you, and we could do something about it. And that went out. That went out completely. But what one of the greatest challenges, yeah, one of the greatest challenges for policing, along with the reduced numbers, as, as, you've, as you've articulated it, is equally retention because that pressure is then passed on to other officers there's the calls for services are through the roof people are having to multitask and having to do the jobs that ward officers were doing years ago etc etc you spent quite a bit of time between 2013 and 2015 leading the role in in a quality and diversity team helping the met re-recruitment retention and progression of underrepresentative groups at the rank of at your rank of superintendent at the time retention is the biggest challenge facing policing today numbers of people People exiting the service, I believe, are unsustainably high. What has policing got to do not only to ensure that it's reflective of the communities it polices and equally to retain those staff for a period of time that, you know, sees them seeing out these 25, 30 year careers? Or is it, does that no longer exist? That was a good point. You know, when I joined uh, policing 1992, I, I didn't see myself doing anything else. I'm told that uh, people joining in 2023 see it as maybe a five or ten year career and um if they don't like it they'll move on and i suppose it's a bit like um you know dating apps you go on a date with somebody for a few times if you don't like it you swipe left and move move on to somebody else i think i think look i'm a 57 year old man what do i know i think society has got to a stage where if it doesn't like something it will quickly move on to something else um, so therefore people aren't willing to stay and just un go through some some of the difficult periods. That's not to say 
if we pe treat people outrageously, they should stay anyway. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is every job you have will have its difficulties. But sometimes it feels like when there's a little bit of difficulty, people leave too quickly sometimes. That said, the amount of pressure we put on our front line is unacceptable. It is utterly unacceptable. The amount of pressure that politicians put on our front line, with frankly speaking, um, you know, uh, hypocritical views on policing, that drip, drip effect means that people are much more likely to leave. The work I did around retention, though, was more about the hemorrhage rate of underrepresented groups of people of colour from policing was far, far, far greater than that of the of the majority group or the average. And so I did have some success in retaining more people of colour within policing. Um, but it's a good point, actually. You know, What do we do about retaining everybody? Mm. Um, one of the last things I did before I retired was said to the Hampshire Isle of Wight Constabulary, why do we call it an exit interview when people leave? Why are we calling it a stay interview? Why isn't the emphasis on what would you do? Could, could you stay if I change things? In my career, there are three people that would have retired early who at their interview with me, I persuaded to stay, and all three of them stayed on and then completed the 30 and thanked me for doing what I did. Because I tinkered and around and made some changes around their work-life balance. And for a minimal investment on the part of the organisation, we kept somebody much, much longer. Um, and we don't do enough of that. We don't do enough of that. So when people say we want to go, we have an exit interview as opposed to a stay interview. We don't really get to the heart of what the problems are. There is a problem around resourcing. Demand is up. Um, and the ability to, to service that demand is not where it needs to be. We have a very immature workforce. By immature, I mean inexperienced. They will get experience, but it's going to take time because time is the only thing that you can do to get that experience. What I do worry about, though, is there are people with my level of service who are leaving um, in big numbers and... Um, who are these younger officers or indeed inspectors and police officers looking up to for advice and guidance around how to lead during difficult times? So, we're, so we do have a relatively inexperienced cohort of middle managers, relatively inexperienced of middle managers. Um, I, I would, I would join the Met Police or Hampshire in a heartbeat and do another thirty years. I recognise that. It is a much, much, much harder job than when I joined. Much harder. And would I have survived, let alone th thrived? I don't know. I really don't know. It's in it's interesting because, you know, at the weekend, you know, I was at a local fete and I met with um, one PCSO and a constable, both under eight months of service, both working together on the road operationally. Um, and I did sit there and think to myself, you know, this I don't know what experience you can have and what knowledge and expertise you can have only with eight months it's it seems incredibly junior you know it, it, you know the years when I was going through and I'm I'm an 0405 baby in terms of when I went through mm. you know yeah. I was sitting beside somebody who had 10 12 years experience for the first couple of years before I was even allowed to touch the, the you know the a set of car keys or go out you know with anyone under sort mm. of five years experience and I suppose I just worry with the high levels of turnover <laughs> whether we'll ever see those that that wealth of experience on the road anymore because people as you quite rightly say see this more as a five to eight year career and then sort of move on and the pressures that they're under maybe force those years even lower than those numbers I've just 
quoted. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a sweet spot um, between uh, the right level of experience, but also having the right values. So a PC or a PCSO with the right values might only have eight months service, but they've got the right values, but are lacking the experience. Because the reality is, is that, you know, someone with two years experience and someone with 10 years experience, the person with 10 years experience doesn't have five times more experience. Because I think your experience plateaus. So your, your steep learning curve starts to plateau after two, two and a half years. So I think what makes a great police person is the, the values, attitude, and behavior. Uh, what form to fill in or what button to press is irrelevant if you come across as being a decent person. Of course, experience will allow you to then work out how to problem solve better, how to crisis manage better, um, how to, you know, resolve conflict better um i do want to say that um uh, if if the public think we are crime fighters then we're not we are crisis managers of which fighting crime is one of the things that we do but on any given day much less than half of the calls for service to the police are anything to do with crime but i think the public think we're crime fighters and we're not Mental health isn't a crisis. A missing person, so mental health isn't a crime. A missing person isn't a crime. Unless, of course, something happens to them. Um, much antisocial behaviour isn't a crime. It's often just kids being really noisy. We get deployed to these things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't get deployed to them. I just think there should be a recognition that we're crisis managers, not crime fighters. And I did, you know... Cheekily say to Preeti Patel when she's Home Secretary on a Zoom call, there should be a royal commission into uh, into um, into policing, asking the question, do we truly police by consent anymore? Because that's a phrase that gets thrown around without much thought anymore. Do we police by consent anymore? Whose consent? What does consent look like now? Some 178, 190 years before it became a thing. Uh, let's re let's relook at it now. Of course, you know uh, the then Home Secretary turned it around and said that sounds like a university PhD question, and then singularly failed to answer it. Quite why you know when policing is in such a crisis, we are not choosing to have a royal commission. It seems to me madness. And I have to say, Baroness Casey's report when I read it, I thought. At last, somebody has really properly described the culture of the Metropolitan Police Service, warts and all. And there were things in there that I, I'd been saying independently, but of course had no evidence other than my feeling. Um, apart from that, yeah, the bit around institutional racism, which I have a slightly different view on. Touch on this because, you know, you've obviously described that policing is far harder today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, undoubtedly. And I wonder whether policing has become too yeah. politicised. There are so many groups that exist in society now. Policing doesn't know which ones to support and which ones not to align itself with. Some, one, some would argue some are heavily politicised, that policing has lost its ability to be neutral 
in in a position in society where it should be in terms of totally impartial to any particular view of any kind with any particular group. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? But we should never th- we should never worry about being impartial around who needs us most. There are there are groups of people that need us more than others. So if the argument, and I know this, Oliver, this is not what you're saying, but if the debate is everyone should have an equal application of service, well, no, because if that funding is finite, then there are parts of London and parts of Manchester and Birmingham and, you know, some of the county forces as well that needs more attention. And so straight away, impartiality, you could argue, no longer it doesn't exist because we're giving some parts of community more attention. If it's around, if the sort of the, 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 the debate is around the role of, say, Black Lives Matters or reclaim the streets, et cetera, et cetera, I don't have an issue with these groups at all. Uh, they represent society. Whether I like it or not, they represent society. Uh, what's different now is that technology allows these groups to come together more quickly, more vocally, and more overtly. But these groups, well, this way of thinking has always existed. Um, and the vacuum created by not having neighbourhoods teams means that some groups have stepped into that space. And so it's entirely you know, down to central government funding around neighbourhood policing. Um, and that has got to be returned. I, it dismays me when I hear some people talk about back-to-basics policing. Uh, what does back-to-basics actually mean? If you read Casey's report, these, these are the cultures that back-to-basics in its wider sense, has generated. Are we saying that we want Casey's report to be ignored? No. So what does back to basics actually mean? I don't know. I don't know, but it doesn't doesn't feel right to me to say back to basics, please. But it is much, much harder now. I interpret the back to basics policing is answering 999 calls going to people's properties that have become victims of crime, Mm. investigating those, not writing them off at the first instance, making sure that we have ample coverage for people to be able to see a police officer in their communities as we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think it's just about getting those basic steps right of what the public expect of a policing service. Yeah, but the public think we're only crime fighters. This is an interesting point because obviously Sir Mark Rowley made an announcement nearly a fortnight ago that police would no longer attend non-life-threatening mental health calls for services. Now, I must admit I was a... I'm a supporter of that policy because I think police spend far too many hours guarding individuals that are in a mental health crisis that need to be with a medical professional inside hospitals and and, and on cell watches. I think our time, you know, there are other, we've been a Band-Aid fix for a number of other government departments for many, many years. And this isn't just isolated to the UK. I think it's a global thing in terms of social, you know, social expectations of what actually is policing for. And I think that's what politicians need to define. What actually do they want policing to do? Would you? Is that something you agree upon, or you have a view upon? No, I, I I agree that there's been there's been mission creep, but what what can we expect when um, uh, austerity decimated mm. health provision, education provision, youth service provision, mm. decimated it, mm. and mm. that um, when there's a crisis, who are people going to turn to? It's going to be the police. Because it could be argued that why do police um, spend so much resource on missing persons? 
if they are low risk, then they'll come back of their own accord. And by the way, that is not what I'm advocating. I'm not advocating that whatsoever. What I'm saying, though, is, is that back to basics has, has always been more than just about crime. And to your point around attending calls, police have always attended calls, uh, 999 calls. They stopped attending burglaries, which I thought was a nonsensical decision. And now we're reverting back to it. Um, I think what Mark Rowley said, in the main, I agree with. I think somebody had to blink first. But he's now put the ball in the court of other people who are going to have to start stepping up now. But all of this comes back down to if we want to do all these things, it's got to be cash in hand. It's got to be more people to do it. And I, I remember I had a, had a conversation with, with uh, Chief Superintendent colleagues um, about four or five years ago, and I said, rather than give me 100 police officers, give me 50 work, youth workers and 50 mental health workers. I'd have that over police officers. Let's try and stop these things happening in the first case, because, of course, policing only ever comes into action at a point of failure. So people, you know, I've got this this uh, this this view that um, uh, a sanction detection or an arrest is is a proxy indicator of failure. Because our job is to prevent crime. So if a crime's taking place and we have to arrest someone, then you could argue the arrest is actually an indicator of failure. Now, of course, we're not stopping every crime. That's not what I'm saying. But if we don't spend time trying to prevent things happening, then crime just going to keep going on and going on. And the the, 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 the draw on service can go up and up and up. And it's already breaking and it will break further. I want to talk about probably, um, you know, policing, as we've talked about throughout your career thus far, presents many, many different challenges, both emotionally, both physically, in ways that people that I don't think have ever been in the vocation would probably quite understand. And one of the greatest challenge, challenges for you came towards, one would say, that the sort of tail end of your career around the tragedy of the murder of Keith Palmer outside Westminster. And um, you, you were on call at that time in terms of supporting with the collation, the identification of witnesses to what was a horrific event witnessed by hundreds of people. And you were called upon to sort of manage witnesses um, within a setting within Westminster. Can you talk us through that particular day at all? They bowed their heads for one of their own. PC Keith Palmer's coffin laid in rest last night in the Palace of Westminster, a special honour granted by the Queen. This afternoon he began his final journey, starting across the cobbled forecourt where he was killed. Number one daddy, brother, husband read the flowers. This hard-working police officer was a family man too, and it wasn't lost on the crowds who'd gathered to pay their respects. Some serving officers with children of their own. They watched as the procession went past. It's the one thing you, you dread, I think, from the family's point of view, is that whenever they get that chap in the door to say something's happened. Um, you know, we've been fortunate. Um, as I say, it's fortunate there wasn't more killed on the day, so... But it's, it's, it's so sad. We definitely feel it, of course we do. And I think that'll be borne out today by the amount who've coming down to pay their respects, who've travelled from all over the country as well as the Met Police. 
The route to Southwark Cathedral was closed to traffic, filled instead with the police family, more than 5,000 coming together from forces all over the country for a man described by his colleagues as every sergeant's dream. It was always looking at the next day's work, you know, planning ahead. We, we had a, a team of only four of us, but Keith was buff. It was like having 10 people sometimes. He, he always did his best. He, paint a picture of a perfect policeman, you'd be painting a picture of Keith Palmer. PC Palmer's wife and daughter, mother and father, brother and sisters all followed the hearse in cars. Above, two police helicopters escorted the procession and performed a bow over Southwark Cathedral. His coffin was carried by family and friends for a private service. As they went in, Officers fell silent. No room inside, they listened to the eulogy in the open air, memories echoing those of his colleague. His favourite was being out on the, on, on the streets, talking to the members of the public, you know, happily taking pictures with people, and he had a, he had a way of communicating with people uh, from all walks of life, from the lords and the, the baronesses that, that work up there, the MPs. The, the cleaners, he, he was popular amongst all of the staff up there. This was goodbye from PC Palmer's police family. They said he was a hero who died doing his duty. Keith's blue lamp will shine bright forever. His coffin was taken away for a private funeral. I think it's also important to um, recognise that Keith wasn't the only person that was murdered up there, and we had uh, we had members of the public that died as well. But of course, Keith being being one of us is particularly poignant uh, to me. So I was the public order commander on on call. Uh, so the call came in. Look, we've got hundreds and hundreds of people got huge crime scenes. We need commanders to control all of this resource. Raj, you're going to get the Houses of Parliament and Westminster Abbey. Um, to look after. We've housed people in both those locations. So um, we drive up on blues and twos. I'm, I'm in total police officer mode, thinking, right, what am I going to do? Blah, blah, blah. I get my head around what's next. At this point, I don't think we knew that Keith had died. Um, I think I found out slightly later on. But anyway, so I'm with my loggist. And I'm walking up the footpath. I decided to go to the Abbey first. It's a bigger location. There are more people in there. And as I'm walking up the footpath, the, the, the double doors to the Abbey have got sort of square glass windows. So you can see inside the Abbey, and you can see your reflection at the same time. And as I walked up, I saw what now turns out to be about 500 people. But in my head, I thought it was 5,000. It was teeming with people. I could also see my reflection at the same time. And for a second, I thought, I can't do this. The magnitude of what had taken place, I think by now then, I think we'd learned that Keith had died. The magnitude of what had taken place, the magnitude of what I'm now about to do, which wasn't, wasn't massively challenging, but I had 500 plus people entirely dependent on my decision making now. And I think the phrase is, I just sucked it up. I just walked in and the first thing I did was 
I grabbed a microphone. Because I thought, if I don't grab this microphone now and address the people, I will persuade myself not to address the people. And there's a great photograph of me on the pulpit. And um, uh, I've got my hands outstretched like I'm um, almost like Jesus, almost. And that, that, sort of, that really interesting juxtaposition of a, a, a Sikh man in a police officer's uniform in a Christian church addressing a congregation. It's a great photograph. But I forced myself to speak to the people uh, because I knew that all of those people were entirely dependent on me in terms of what is happening next. And then this is where some of our elected officials really do not understand life. So, yes, it's a huge inconvenience to keep everyone in there, but we were still securing crime scenes. We're still debriefing who may or may not have mobile phone footage, who may or may not have seen things. It's going to take a long time. I had a number of, and I have to say, they were from the same party. They were Tory members. After an hour and a half saying, don't you know who I am? Or words to that effect. I've got a meeting to attend to. This is utterly outrageous. You can't hold me here against my will. These are lords and MPs, elected representatives of the people who understandably want to go elsewhere. So I did. I bit slightly because I did about three or four um, um, announcements from the pulpit. And I did say to people, yes, there's some of you that have got meetings to go to. There are four people dead who, are, who their next engagement will be their own funeral. And I, or words to that effect, because I bit entirely, because massive stress, massive stress around these, these people, whereas the public were brilliant. Funnily enough, a very good friend of mine happened to be there. I hadn't seen her for about 15 years, so I mean, that begs the question, is she a very good friend? But certainly at the university, we were quite close. And uh, she could easily have said, look, Rod, can you do me a favor? I've got two young children. Is there any way I can jump to the head of the queue to, 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 to go out first? She never said that. She said, thank you for what you're doing. And she'd been there three hours. Whereas, and then when we started to debrief, the, the, these elected members rushed to the front, ahead of men and women with young children and babies. I mean, it was just dreadful behavior. So disappointing. Uh, on the flip side of that, on the Houses of Parliament side, when there was fewer people, um, I, there was, um, there was um, John Stevens, Ian Blair, and um, one other former commissioner who I can't, whose name now escapes me. Oh, that's really dreadful. With three former commissioners there. So you can imagine the pressure I'm now feeling with three former commissioners there. And it felt a little bit like that Doctor Who episode when all the doctors come back at once and all standing in one place because you never see three commissioners next to each other. I'm thinking, it blew my mind. None of them asked me for favours. None of them said, look, Raj, can we go out? Because they got it. They knew it. They understood it. The elected members of parliament and some of the lords, and we're talking about maybe nine or ten people, so I'm, I don't want to taint the whole lot. Nine or ten people 
putting me and my colleagues under really unfair pressure, saying, this is outrageous, I'm going to speak to your boss, going to this, to which I'm saying, you can please speak to my boss. But you, no one's going yet till we get this sorted. It was a really challenging time for me. Upon reflection, I probably did bite. I did bite, of course I did. I wouldn't say I lost my temper, but I was probably a bit more forthright than I've been even uh, even in this call. You know, family is one of the biggest supporters of any police officer's career, husband, wives, you know, aunties, uncles, brothers, sisters, and children, you know, supporting you through what is, you know, can be really challenging times. That That would have been an incredibly somber day because ultimately a colleague as you say there are multiple people killed at the hands of an abhorrent act of terror on the streets of london but a colleague has been killed whilst doing um you know public service you know looking after people at westminster on the streets of london how was that for you going home after going through such an event how you know there must the emotions must have been flowing in all sorts of directions i i went home and i slept like there's no tomorrow I was completely wiped out and then spend the next couple of days. And then, of course, people, you know, I, I've in my time been involved in numerous off-duty arrests. And my wife is always saying to me, look, you're putting yourself in danger. Um, but I just, it's something I, I feel the need to do. But after Keith's death, then you, then you, you start to question your own mortality. You're not a superhuman anymore. Well, you never were, but you're not a superhuman. What are you going to do? Um, so I didn't question this, you know, do I put myself on offer? Now, there are times when, of course, I'll step in. If I see something really horrendous happening, I'm going to step in. Other times, I'm going to deal with, I'll deal with things differently. Um, but that whole thing about we, the police, run to danger where the public run away from danger is, is one that always strikes me, you know. Mm. I'm not saying all public run away from, I'm not, and, and I'm not saying running away from danger is, I'm not putting that in a negative connotation. If there's danger, you're a member of the public, you absolutely run away from it, absolutely run away from it. But our job is to run towards it. Um, and that's hard. That's hard to run towards when you know that actually there are people out there that want to do you harm. And then there are times when you then stop and think, how is this going to play out on, on YouTube, on TikTok? On mainstream media. So I'll give you an example. Uh, ooh, about a year and a half ago, it's not that long ago, <clears throat> there was some sort of altercation, uh, standoff in a local uh, supermarket. Walked in and there was this kid, 14, 15 years old, and um, I think he'd been trying to shoplift. The store staff had tried to stop him. There was a bit of a standoff. And he, he did that that head wobble movement that racist people use towards Indian people. So the shop shop staff were Indian and did that rate that. So I rang 999 and said, look, this is a racial incident because uh, he's clearly been up to no good. He is now making racist gest gestures. Um, now, I could have put my hands on him and arrested him, put him to the floor. But in my head, I thought, how does this look? A man who's 15 stone and at the time 55 years old versus someone who's two-thirds his weight and a third his age. And then he's got his mates outside. Now, I reckon 10, 15 years ago, I, that would never have entered my head. In fact, 10, 15 years ago, I have had put my hands on 
15, 16 year olds and had to be physical with them to restrain them. Today, I think twice. And I wonder whether our colleagues who are in uniform or indeed not in uniform, but are on patrol, whether they think, what do I do here? Do I bother putting up my blue lights against that electric moped? Because if it makes off and gets taken out, what's going to happen next? Really difficult stuff. Really difficult stuff. The we want to touch on. Um, obviously, we've we've reflected on um, some terminology throughout the podcast, and we, we've spoken about this um, this saying, which Sir Mark Rowley is not wanting to adopt because of his belief as to the different meanings of the term institutionally racist. Chief Constable uh, of Scotland's police came out recently and declared his organisation fitted that terminology. Uh, my interview with Neil Basu, he agreed with that terminology. Victor Elisa, he agreed with that terminology. But there are others that don't agree with it. I'm interested to take your views on a subject which has been very much front of mind in the last few weeks. So my view is, is that institutional racism is a result of unchecked unconscious bias. But unless you tell people and show to them their unconscious bias, then then to call them racist is unfair. To call them racist, I think we jump to racist, misogynist, sexist too quickly, in most cases. Because how do you know you're doing something wrong unless someone tells you what you're doing is wrong? And I know that some people feel that, that I'm trying to be an apologist. I'm actually trying to be a realist. I'm trying to win the hearts and minds of the vast bulk of people who are not racist, but operate in a racist manner because no one's told them that what they're doing is racist. So if someone uses the N-word, they clearly know they're racist. If someone is exclusively stopping young black boys, and they don't know that's what they're doing, how can I call them racist if I don't prove it? What we do, though, have, which I find really interesting, is that... Uh, policing is is about evidence. If you arrest somebody, you find the evidence, you've got the evidence, you take it to court, you prosecute it. There is a ton of evidence that will say that people that look like me and women and other underrepresented groups have a far worse time in policing than anybody else. Yet, the very, very senior people uh, oftentimes don't accept that. We'll try and explain it away. Uh, I, you know, I've come away from, towards the end of my career, describing some of my experiences around not being selected to go to the strategic command course with some very, 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 I think, poor decision-making. Um, but when you describe it to colleagues, they still don't see it. They still don't see it. So I'm trying to pursue a concept called institutional inclusivity. And let's be, let's, you know, institutional racism, it doesn't matter what you call it, you have to do something about it. And I think under the current government, it's going backwards because the the phraseology and the culture of the current government um, is allowing some chief officers not to pay any attention to the race action plan, not to pay any attention to the violence against women and girls strategy because it's this back-to-basics approach. Because let's be honest, Back to basics doesn't fit the definition most people say that policing should be uh, should be sub uh, uh, subscribing to. People would say that pursuing diversity, inclusion, and equality is irrelevant because it's not back to basics. So the direction of government around back to basics and the phraseology woke policing and thought police and 
all the things they use to denigrate people who think creatively and differently about certain situations, designed to take away the legs of, of, of all things diversity and inclusion. I do have a frustration with the, with, the, with, the, with the current administration. I have a dream that's bigger than sending people on a plane to Rwanda, frankly speaking. I have a dream where there are no people in the United Kingdom that are below the poverty line, that we no longer have food banks, that when someone rings 999, the police actually turn up. That's the dream I have. I, I'm not, you know, small boats. Do I care about small boats when there are people in this country queuing up food banks? I don't care about small boats. And I do find it ironic that we're worried about small boats in 2023. No one worried about the big boats back in the day when the British Empire went out and raided and stole from India, Africa and other countries their gold and their cultural heritage. And they never repaid it. The amount of hypocrisy that goes on, frankly speaking, is staggering. Um, so under the current government, current Home Secretary, the really bullish, inappropriate language she uses, I don't see any chief officer feeling under any obligation to deliver anything because it doesn't fit under Back to Basics. Your move to um, Hampshire, what triggered that? A great question. A number of things. I wanted to work with Olivia, Olivia Pinkbane. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant public leader. I mean, just exceptional. I'd wanted to be support to go to the strategic command course. Now, in fairness to the Met, they did support me to apply. Uh, I wasn't successful, but they didn't afford me an opportunity of being a temporary commander and exposing myself to those experiences, which would have put me in a better position to then, when I retake the assessment, be successful. And that's what I, I, I alluded to earlier on. If we truly want to make sure the representation is where it's at, then it would not was not a difficult decision to test me for four or five months as a temporary commander. And there's some nuances around some of that decision making which is not appropriate for me to discuss now. But it was very, 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 very easy. Um, so I still wanted to be a, an assistant chief constable or a commander. So I went to Hampshire with a view to working for Olivia, experiencing something different. I've always thought that working in a county is going to be much harder than working in the Met, and it is. It's more challenging, believe it or not. And I can say that from a position of knowledge because I've done both. Um, but I did want to get promoted. Never quite happened. I find it interesting and very, very disappointing, though, that um, when leaving the Met... Um, I didn't, you know, I had to proactively seek people to say bye to me at the very, very senior levels. Uh, your listeners may not know. Um, I I reported wrongdoing it, you know, within the Met with some very high-ranking officers that went to a gross misconduct board in which they were sacked. And the amount of support I got from my line manager in the Met at the time, and I have to say, up to the commissioner, up to the commissioner, was zero. Not a single phone call to say thank you for pointing out. Not a single phone call to say, are you okay? Because you 
Because when you report wrongdoing in the police, Oliver, you'll know this, you put you, you make yourself very, very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Not a single person of commander rank or above bothered to ask how I'm doing. Or even even make sure that um, when I turned up to give evidence that I was afforded some sort of, you know, not red 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 carpet treatment, but afforded some some sort of professional courtesy. That is not how you treat people. So, can I can I assume that it was the previous commissioner to Sir Mark Rowley that you're talking about? Yes, Cressida Dick. Mm. Um, I I really like and respect Cressida, but I expected Cressida or the deputy chief uh, deputy commissioner to say, "Look, Raj, you know we know you've done this. Thank you for doing it because these colleagues lost their jobs." So clear, not not for what I reported. My bit was was minimal. What what took place was that what I reported um, then uh, allowed other people to say, well, if a chief super can say something, then there's the things that we're not happy about. And so other things were were then reported, and these colleagues lost their jobs. And it's a real shame because you know I don't want to, you know, I never want to involve myself in self myself and people losing their job, but I couldn't stand back if I thought something inappropriate was taking place. Well, my point being is that never was I supported at the very highest levels of policing. Never. That's wrong. That's, that is just wrong. I've never had a thank you. I've never had an apology saying, sorry, we should have done better by you. They didn't act. They gave the impression of not caring and also gave the impression that we wish you hadn't done that, Raj, because now look what, what what's happened. And I, the biggest worry for me there is, is if we can't acknowledge and support a chief superintendent who's raising concerns as to culture, behaviour and misconduct, what chance have we got of giving the confidence to the lower ranks, constable, sergeant, inspector, etc., to make these reports with confidence knowing that they'll be looked after and not isolated? Yeah, I think, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, and, you know, as I say, knowing Cressida as I do, I, it made her lack of engaging with me even more acute because of her values. So she must have known something was taking place. Um, my, but my own boss never spoke to me about it. You know, the only support I got was from the Police Superintendents Association and the head of uh, uh, the um, Director of Professional Standards, who were brilliant. But that's it's their job to do that because I've reported wrongdoing. The role of my management should have been much should have been much better. I mm. felt completely unsupported. I could write a book of some of the shenanigans that took place in that period of my life. Uh, because but having done what I did, I made myself very, very, very vulnerable or felt very vulnerable. Not once did anyone reach out and say, are you okay? Not once. That's really sad. Do, do you think during that period, Raj, and maybe even today, because I know there's still a lot to fix before I think the Met can be perceived as being in a better position than it was. Do you think during that period, though, that the Met was institutionally incompetent? From my personal perspective, the way I was treated, yes. I think I, think I have to say it, there, there is significant incompetence and naivety. And for the record, I'd also like to say that I thought the way Cressida was treated by the mayor was abysmal. 
that the the issues around Charing Cross and that WhatsApp group were dealt with and uncovered in a large part to Cressida saying, um, we're going to hunt these people down and we're going to root it out. So once we start rooting out, then to be punished for rooting it out seems wrong. I think Cressida was treated abysmally. Yes, I have a difference of opinion around how I was personally treated. And, you know, I would say to Cressida, why did you not support me? But Cressida is a the way she was treated was completely outrageous, completely outrageous. She should not have had to resign, stroke, be sacked for what she was uh, uh, sacked for, because she was she was turning the organization around. She really was. From my personal experience, I thought she could have done better by me, but Hey, look, I am one of 34,000 people, and she was doing right by 33,999 other people, and that's good enough for me. It sounds to me, would, would, would I be right in saying that your move to Hampshire and the Isle of Wight constabulary was not really through choice, it was more because you thought you would get better opportunities to get on the strategic command course and enhance your career further than you would at the Met? Well, it was a little bit of everything. It was a, uh, I wanted a different experience. I wanted a um, chance to progress my career. I wanted to be part of a team that could influence a constabulary um, much more easily. Look, as a chief super in the Met, I'm one of many, many, many. I can't, you know, uh, influence the whole of the Met, but in a smaller place, I can do. Um, but also maybe an unconscious feeling of disappointment of how I was being treated. And I'm not saying people operated against me. I just don't think people really understood what I was going through. Your last official day um, in policing is the 18th of June. Uh, as this episode goes out, it will be uh, the day before, you know, the, the day after. This is the first day of your official retirement. What are your plans outside of policing in terms of, you know, is there an opportunity for you to provide the support, expertise and talents that you have still to policing, but from the outside, you know, at the College of Policing or are there other avenues that you're potentially looking at? Well, if, if any elements of the podcast haven't ended my career in, 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 in that direction, then yes, I'm hoping to do something with the College of Policing because... Whilst I'm forthright with my views, I think my views are honest. I don't think they're negative. I think they're just honest. Um, Gavin Stevens, who's the chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, has very kindly found some time to see me face-to-face -face in, in a few weeks' time. And I have said, look, I would like to be involved in the race action plan. I think there are ways of approaching this, that which which is a win-win. And we knew, we do need to win it. We do. Um I'm always available to the College of Policing. I've made my services available to the College of Policing for years around giving inputs on unconscious bias. Um, I couldn't seem to get 45 minutes onto the Strategic Command course syllabus to talk about unconscious bias, which I think is an opportunity missed. It doesn't have to be from me. There's Dr. Pete Jones. There are other people in the field who are knowledgeable or experienced or experts but there just seems to be a, something missing there. So I'm available to call it. I want to do something in the in the world of public service, though, because as I said at the top end, being a Sikh, seva service is 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 in my 
is in my genes. Well, Raj, it's been an absolutely incredible insight um, into your life in British policing. You know, the highs, the lows, the challenges, more importantly, of a vocation, which is incredibly complex. And I think it's an important moment to acknowledge the sacrifices of your family that sit behind you in terms of the support they provided you over 30 years, because um, I, I believe that is critically important to the success of police officers and allowing them to do their role so successfully as you have done over many many years um, you're incredibly well thought of you know it's quite evident from uh, your twitter feed and the interactions that we've had that there are many many countless officers who count you not only as a friend but an incredible leader in british policing so thank you ever so much for your public service over what is an incredible three decades of policing and obviously on behalf of myself and my little small podcast team here at protect and serve we wish you all the very best for the future and look forward to staying in touch and watching to see what you do outside of policing Oliver, thank you so much for your very kind words. And to the listeners, if you're still awake, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Raj. Thank you, Oliver. Bye This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.